Hi, Joan. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Joan. It's nice to be talking with you today. That's great. I, um, I've been thinking of um, a number of questions that I've been meaning to ask you. You um, have helped me over the years with my yoga practice, and I've learned so much from you and been such a big help to me. Um, but I have ongoing challenges, and um, so perhaps in answering these questions for me and um, for others, it will help um, a lot. Um, and the subject of my question today is the mind. Interesting topic. And <laughs> a deep one, a yeah. deep topic. Yes. <laughs> So I heard a quote the other day, and it really struck me, and I don't know who to attribute the quote to, but it was something like, if one doesn't learn to control one's own mind, then surely someone else will control it for him. And that that struck me. So how how can I... Um, learn to control my own mind. Well, I'll dive in. I don't know if I can answer that completely. That's a huge subject, but there are some things that <laughs> <laughs> there are some things that I can share with you, particularly you know based on the teachings of uh, our tradition. So back to what you said. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a similar saying: yeah, if if you're not using your mind, someone is using it for you. So it's a kind of similar concept. Uh-huh. Right. Absolutely. Yes, but one thing we have to do is understand the mind and how it works. And first of all, mind is energy. My teacher described the relationship between the brain and the mind. Brain is like the light bulb. It's the container. So that's the brain. And the mind is the energy, the light. So when you turn on the switch, the light bulb is illuminated. So the light bulb being being the brain and the mind being that which illuminates the brain. So the mind is basically energy. We have to understand that the mind is not just the brain where it's a static thing. The mind is more dynamic. And because of that, the mind interacts with a lot of external forces. It interacts with things outside of the form of the brain. The mind is energy. So it hears things. It engages the senses, basically employs the senses to gather information. And that information from the senses supplies the mind and allows the mind to function. But that information, how that comes in, it comes in many ways. There's definitely cultural conditioning. There's what we get from our parents, our upbringing. There's societal conditioning. So all those things play upon the mind. And now that we're in the age of technology and computers, information is at our fingertips, literally, you know, our phones or our mobile devices, our computers. So we can constantly get a stream of energy and information coming to the mind. So one of the steps to control the mind is to evaluate what's coming in. What are we allowing to come into our mind? Because everything that we allow to come into the mind, everything we experience through our senses is recorded. It's recorded into the mind. And some of those things are just very subtle, they're recorded, they're stored in the subconscious mind. And then other things are things that we 
think about, we contemplate, we form attachments around, or we identify with those things. How do we discriminate between what we allow to affect our minds and what we don't? I think it's a common that we understand that being around negative influences negatively affects our minds. So we try to remote, remove those influences. And we try to put ourselves in situations that help us. We have a goal to be spiritual, for example. We want those spiritual influences. If we want to be a worldly success, then we want to be around things of, that inspire us to be world successful, whether athletes or scientists or whatever our pursuits are. So being able to keep the mind in the right track and the position to be influenced by that which motivates us to pursue our, our goals and dreams. Spiritually, of course, we want to do something even take that a step further. Spiritually, we want to get in touch with what's within us. We want to do the self-discovery and understand who we are on all levels. So a lot of external information is not very useful in that realm. For external success, yes. You know, getting a lot of external information is helpful in that. But spiritually, relying more on internal information, finding out who we are, and finding out that spiritual voice, that voice of consciousness, that voice of spirit, soul, we want to be able to listen to that. So in order to do that, we have to sort of shut out some of the external information that we're always getting. So it takes a little bit of discipline to be still, to be quiet, listen to that voice from within, and not be so dependent upon external information. So I'm gonna Okay, and there sure is a lot of that these days. <laughs> yes. A lot of external information. Yes, and not only that, is we're trained and conditioned to be, become dependent upon that. We depend on that for everything. Everything we learned, basically, in the external world, we learned because... We used our senses, whether we heard it or we felt it or we saw it. We use that to gather information. So our, main is, our minds are trained in a, in a very narrow way. On the spiritual path, it's a different type of training. You're training the mind to, to not always look outside and to be dependent on, outside, on the external and to be more dependent internally. The, the path of meditation, yoga, spirituality is a path of independence. It's a path of going within uh, listen to yourself. Maybe you're not so informed about what's going on in the external world. Maybe you're not so attached. You're not so dependent. But you become more self-reliant. You rely on what, what your inner voice tells you. In the beginning, it's a transition because in the, in the beginning, the forces of the external world and, and that habit of the mind is going to be so strong that when you start to shut that out, you start to maybe feel maybe a lack of confidence You know, of not being able to get that information. But over a period of time, you become more dependent and more self-reliant on that which comes from within. Can you talk about the self-dialogue? And in other words, if I am sitting quietly, successfully being able to um, turn my attention inward, but then my self-talk or my self-dialogue is um, that which can distract me or maybe even upset me in a way, how, how do I begin to um, change or manage my self-dialogue? That's a good question. And the first step is what you said, just the attempt of even sitting still to listen. 
That's the first step, and that's a habit you have to form. Because unless you have that habit of just being able to be still, turning off all the external noise, you're never going to be able to even start the journey. So that commitment, that's the number one commitment, is just to be still. Maybe some days you can spend more time, others maybe just a few minutes of just quietness, and other days you might get more time. Once you develop that habit, you will start to confront what you said. You know, you'll, you'll confront positive thought patterns, but also negative thought patterns. All that makes you who you are. All the things that you've learned, your conditioning, your attachments, all those start to come before you. So the first step is just making peace with that and not judging. Mistakes some people make is when those thoughts come up, they start to, oh, I'm not meditating or, oh, these negative thoughts are coming, I need to fight them, or, oh, I don't feel good about myself. The first step is just self-acceptance. Understand that you are not your thoughts. Even though those thought forms are there, that's not who you are. So you don't have to identify with them and say, oh, because I have negative thoughts, I must be a bad person. Oh, because I have positive thoughts, I must be a great person. Just simply observe, just learn to observe the thoughts and just start to understand yourself. And sometimes when you go through that process, there may be days when, yes, negative thoughts come up and the emotions along those come up and you need to just say, you know what, I, I, no, I can't do that today because it's not putting me in the space I want to be. But as you continue on this process, you'll learn to just create a little bit of distance between those thoughts and who you are. So even though the negative thoughts come up, you can just observe them and say, you know, that's not me. Yes, they're there, but I don't have to identify with them. I don't have to attach emotions to those thoughts. So you gradually, slowly but surely become able to analyze, self-analyze, look at your, understand yourself. And sometimes you'll start to find the roots of those thoughts. Again, they'll just be the surface thoughts. They'll come up, you know, it may be negative or positive, and you, you know, and you experience that. But eventually you'll say, okay, but where did that thought arise from? And you'll find something deeper. Maybe that thought that says, I'm not good enough. Okay, but where does that come from? And then you might trace it back to, well, when I grew up, these things were told to me. So you start to slowly but surely unravel those thought forms. And once you start to unravel them, you can let them go. When you're fighting them or repressing them, suppressing them, they're always there. They're always in the subconscious mind. And they become very insidious, which means sometimes they come up when when you don't want them to. But through the process of this, this self, self-inquiries, self-discovery, you learn to understand those thoughts, where they come from, and you understand they're not you. They're just simply habits of the mind. And you slowly can start to change those habits because along with doing that process, you're also engaging in positive things, positive self-affirmations, being inspired by things that are positive. So slowly but surely, the quality of your mind starts to change. That's fantastic. I have um, experienced both of um, those things that you just talked about where sitting still has been just delightful. (laughs) And I have experienced a great joy in that. And other times I have become still and watched my thoughts and the thoughts are those which perhaps I thought that I had made peace with previously, but they bubble up again. And what you just said about I don't always have to kind of push through it in a straining kind of way. I can just accept that 
okay, there that is again, and maybe get up and then come back again soon and sit again, and perhaps that recurring thought is not distracting me at that time. Yes, yes. Training the mind is actually very similar to training the body. So, for example, say you decide, I want to run a marathon, and you know that it's going to take months to train. So you start maybe eight months to a year, maybe ahead of time. And when you first go out running that first mile, it's going to be difficult. And, and maybe, you know, there's soreness or pain. And the next day you might say, you know what, I don't want to go out and run today. But if you just keep at it, you know, over a period of time, you start to get more fit. The body starts to cooperate. That resistance that the body has, the, you know, the you know the effort, the resistance, the body says, I don't want to go out there and do that. But pretty soon that starts to fade away. You get in better shape. You can run longer. You can stay in it. So maybe you start it with a mile and, you're, and that's difficult. And then you get up to five miles. And then pretty soon you start to enjoy it. You look forward to going out and running and training. When the body feels energized and your mind feels positive about it. And you start to get the feeling, you know what, I can do this. I, I, can, I can run a marathon. I can get up to, to, I think it's 26 miles. I can do it. And at that point, then you really start getting on a roll. And then you get your schedule down and you build up and then you're ready to do it. So training the mind is the same thing. When you first start off, yeah, you know, it might be a short amount of times. So the mind may not have the capacity to be still that long. The mind gets easily distracted. Then you go through the period where, you know, similar to the muscles where the, the memories come up that are, negative and, and, and you don't always feel good about it as the resistance is there. But eventually you start to get past that and then you start to treasure and enjoy those quiet moments and you don't want to be disturbed. You don't want to be plugged in. You want to have that quietness because it becomes enjoyable even for a short amount of time. And then that starts to increase to then you can stay longer in that, in that state of quietness. And that's the point where the mind is prepared for meditation. A lot of people like now, you know, meditation is... It's out there. It's pretty common. You hear about it a lot. There's apps out there and there's a lot of things that tell you meditate and scientists tell you, and medical people tell you, well, meditation helps this, helps that. But that doesn't happen right away. You have to get through that training period, those first few miles first, before you really reach the benefits of that. And that's the mental training. Just like we have to train the body first before you can start to run long distances, you have to train the mind first before you think, before you're going to have um, success in meditation. So that, that mental work, that quietness. So the first step to meditation is just to be still, just to be become used to being quiet. And meditation will come down the road, but it's not the first step. The first step is the mind, that discipline with the mind, the same way you would discipline the body, same thing with the mind. You need to discipline the mind first. So I'm thinking of a word that might be descriptive of what you've been talking about, and that word could be contemplation. Contemplation and meditation go hand in hand. Meditation is more the passive aspect. As you're sitting, you're just observing, watching the mind, being still, watching your breath, and just watching what comes up. And sometimes those in the beginning, those thoughts kind of roll one after another after another. Over a period of time, they start to slow down. And eventually, it becomes space between thoughts. So one thought will arise. You just simply observe it. It goes away. Another one comes up, but that space between the two thoughts is where the experience of meditation starts to come up. So that's more of the passive approach. Contemplation is where you actually 
direct, you're more direct in your thoughts. Um, the basis of, of meditation is for some sort of self-knowledge, self-awareness, raising consciousness, connection with others, connection with, with the higher consciousness, those kind of goals. So just thoughts around that, just, just the thoughts, those higher thinking. Obviously, we know we can think about worldly things. There's all kinds of current events and issues we can sit and, and, and think about, contemplate, you know, put a lot of thought into and come up with our own feelings around them, our own opinions, opinions around them. On the spiritual path, meditation, you have to do the same thing. You have to have a purpose of some thought forms or purpose of why you're doing your spiritual path, whether it be a particular spiritual belief system that you think about. There could be certain scriptures or passages that, that you can think about. A lot of spiritual books have, you know, readings. You read certain passages and you sit and let those sink in and think about them and, and connect with them. That's that's another aspect. So you need to really do both. You need to have a, a formula, mental basis for your spiritual practice. Because, yeah, if you, you can just sit and watch your thoughts and, and, and meditate in that way. But having a real definite, a definitive direction for your meditation and practice. That's where, where contemplation comes in. While I am practicing this, am I, or can I expect to increase my intuitive wisdom? Yes. Is that a, a goal? That could be a goal. Yeah, that could be one of those, those goals you have. You know, to deepen your, your intuitive abilities, that's definitely can, can be a, a goal. Those things start to happen because we have, my teacher would say, we are citizens of both the external and the internal world. And we understand our relationship with the external world because that's in our face all the time. From the minute you get up to the time you go to bed, you're interfacing and interacting with the external world. So that's very obvious. But we're also citizens of the internal world. There's a lot of things that go on in the internal world that we're not, not necessarily aware of because we're not trained to tune into those things. Well, intuition is one of those things that is a function of the internal world. It's something deep within you. It's not dependent upon external phenomena. You know, that thing where you just know something. No one told you. You didn't see it. You didn't feel it. You didn't touch it. But some things so just come from that inner knowing. And that's, that's intuition. And that's something that you start to tap into. And that becomes your voice, that voice of intuition, of inner knowledge. That becomes more what you're directed by. And you're less and less dependent upon the messages that come from the external world. So, yes, you're correct that that, that focus on intuition is something, it's an outcome that comes through contemplation and meditation. Mm. I look forward to having more intuitive wisdom. And it, how, how does intuition differ from instinct? Well, instinct is more of a primitive survival. You know, animals have instinct. You know, we have basic survival instincts. A lot of those helpful in the external world. You know, those instincts help us survive in a way. They help us understand how to navigate the external world. Intuition obviously does help us in the external world too, but it also allows us to access the more subtle concepts of life, the more spiritual, subtle things, the things that aren't, aren't so obvious. Where instinct, a lot of it is, is not, it's not necessarily as subtle. It's more immediate in the external, how to navigate the external world. Where intuition is more subtle knowledge, knowledge that comes from, from deep within, knowledge that's been around for, 
through time immemorial, that deep spiritual wisdom and knowledge. It's a different quality. It's, it does come from within. It's instinct does come from within. It's intuition. But in, intuition is more subtle, and it's more, more of a connection with, with consciousness, where instinct is not necessarily a, a connection with consciousness per se. It's more a connection with survival and the, uh, extra, and the instincts that we need to, to navigate the external world. That's right. Can I expect the way that my relationships are to change somewhat once I have been practicing for a while? Well, as you change from the inside out, then your external world around you will adjust to that. And that's one of the differences in spiritual practice. In worldly success, in normal worldly circumstances, we grow from the outside in. Meaning we, we do an ex we do an, an external action, it's evident in the external world, and then we get either rewarded or punished by that. We learn and we're and, and we're conditioned that way. When you're a young kid going to school, if you study and do your work, you'll get an A. And if you get an A, your parents will be happy and you might get a scholarship. That external world sort of informs you and shapes you that way. On the spiritual path, it's from the inside out versus the outside in. As you change from within, then the external world adjusts to you and adapts to you. You become a different person, a more loving person, a more peaceful person, less angry or whatever. You'll notice that the external world, the people react to you differently. And you'll see that your internal growth and change affects the external world around you and what you attract to you. That, that would be a huge boom, I think, for anybody, me included. A more harmonious uh, interaction with everyone that I meet and live with and work with, and that's a wonderful outcome. And it's more sustainable, too, because when you change from the inside out, your motivation to change in the first place is an inner motivation. You're doing it because it's something that you're committed to, something you feel strong about, something that that just arises from, from within. So it's sustainable in that way because that inner motivation is there. And the external motivations are motivated by the outside. You might go to your job and you might perform well, but that's because you have that external pressure. Or maybe you have a boss or someone who, a way of motivating you that's not necessarily positive, but you have to go ahead and do it in order to be successful. So that... So that may not be sustainable because when that boss leaves or you leave that job, those things that you did, you may not want to do them anymore. You only did them to get that external benefit. And when that reward is gone, you're no longer motivated. But when you're motivated from within, that's more sustainable. I see. And what if while I am um, practicing, I begin to look forward to some of those bonuses, so to speak. But then I realize that I'm getting a little bit too dependent on my perceived outcomes. Well, I'm glad Almost you asked Almost as if I'm, I'm expecting a reward, you know, for sitting every day. I'm glad you asked that because you've used the word expectate. You say, can I expect this to happen? And can I expect? So you've used that word a few times in your questioning. So I'm glad, I'm glad you came, you realized that, you know, that that's, that's where you're coming from. 
yes, on this, it's, that's the difference. In the external world, yes, we're conditioned to expect, well, if I do this work, then I, I, you know, in school I get this grade, and if I get these good grades, then I should be able to go to college, and if I have a degree, then I should be able to get a job. So those are expectations. If you put so much effort in, then yes, then these, these things you look for in return. So that's the way that we're conditioned to move through the external world, to build upon that. You know, action result, if you pay this, then you should, you should have that, and if you do this, you should have that. But on a spiritual path, your motivation to do it is different. You do it for the sake of doing it and not for the sake of, of re- re- reaping any rewards. And you reach that state. Maybe in the beginning, sure. In the beginning, there might be expectations. And yes, you hope that if you're doing this practice or meditating, that you're going to be a better person or have more ease or, or feel, feel better about yourself. So yes, those, those can be there in the beginning. But there comes a point where you start to do those without those expectations. Because when you have the expectation, there's always the chance of disappointment. Well, if I've sat and, and meditated now for six months and I still don't, don't feel as peaceful as I want to, well, then if you, get, if you start to feel that, you may say, well, why should I even meditate? Why should I even do these practices if I'm not getting what I, what I want to get out of them? So that's why it's best to not have that expectation. Do it for the sake of doing it. And that's where the contemplation comes in. If you've already decided through your thinking about it, giving a thought, contemplating uh, the spiritual path that you want to be on or the direction of growth that you want to be on, you do it for that sake. The things will come as they come. The rewards on spiritual level aren't always as evident. You know, you might, you might not see it right away. Whereas externally, it's more obvious. If you do something, you, you see the, the tangible result. On the spiritual path, the results aren't as tangible. As I'm talking, I just have this funny story I'll, sh- I'll share with you. Several years ago, I was teaching a meditation class uh, in Chicago. And someone who was a student of mine, she was very quiet in class and didn't say much. And towards the end of it, I opened the floor to, to, to has anyone noticed any effect in their lives? And she spoke up. She goes, you know what? I'm one of those people who get road rage. And we know in Chicago, sitting on those, those highways can be a bear. You could be an hour yeah. commute when you, live, when you live like 10 miles away. So, yeah. so she said, you know, I was driving the, up the other day and someone, you know, she said she, has a, she had a van and she had her kids in the back and their friends. And she said someone, you know, kind of cut in front of me. And she goes, I just kind of swerved out of the way and kept going. And she said her kids in the back were like, Mom, what's wrong with you? A person's <laughs> in front of you and you didn't give them the finger and, you know, and, and, go, into a, and go into a rage. And she no swearing. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, she realized in that moment that, wow, I didn't react with my typical road rage. You know? So that was like a little sign of her for that. And in that moment, she, she was non-reactive. And it doesn't mean that from there on she never has road rage again, but at least, at least that, that was a sign. And in that, in that one moment, she didn't, she didn't react like she, like she normally does, and she was, just calm, she was much calmer. So for her, that was very significant because that was one way of her being able to see that, okay, the breathing and, the, and the, uh, doing the systematic relaxation and, and then sitting for meditation is actually helping me. So sometimes you will you you will see obvious results, or someone will say, "Hey, you seem much calmer," or, or something. And other times, you know, you may not get that external feedback, or sometimes you just feel a, a greater sense of ease and or connection with self. Well, that those things just happen. So you don't really need to have any really necessary expectations, but 
those signposts, those those things will will show up, and you'll be able to see that okay, you know, all this all this meditation and stuff is is actually working. That's great. I had a similar story as well to that. I had a, a very difficult manager at one point in my life at work, and she had called me into her office, and she had a reputation of really kind of ripping into people, and I was very nervous to go into her office and find out what she was angry about. So on the way, walking down the hallway, I thought, I can just be a witness like I am when I sit still and watch my thoughts. I can just be a witness and not react and just listen to what she says. It's exactly what I did, and it seemed to totally change the way that she spoke to me because she started out in the way that I expected. She was angry about something and um, kind of ranting. And then when I didn't react back and just listened and remained a witness, she very quickly calmed down and we had a very nice conversation. It's uh, it's quite powerful. Making change from the inside out is much more powerful from the outside in. And then the whole thing about the reaction, as you were mentioning about not reacting, just listening, that's one of the conditions. There's so many things, ways, and these are things that we discover as we're contemplating, observing, watching, that we're conditioned in a lot of ways. So in one way that we're conditioned is we're conditioned that we always have to react. Someone tells you something, you know, hey, guess what? Did you read in the news about blah, blah, blah? And immediately they want you to react. And, and we give them that reaction because that's what, that's what we're conditioned to do. Or to have an opinion. You know, are you this or you're that? You know, we always have to choose between A or B. So we have to choose. We have to react. We constantly have to externalize ourselves and react to the external world or, or an opinion. But we don't have to. Sometimes you don't have to pick a side. You don't have to say which is right, what's wrong. But you don't have to react to, to things. You can just be still and just take them in. Just take in life. Just be an observer of life. Just observe life. Take it in. Obviously, there's things that you do need to respond to or react to. But a lot of things that we respond to, react to, or have an opinion about, is not necessary. I know with social media, people say that all these opinions fly, fly around on social media, and sometimes those opinions, you know, aggravate them or, or stimulate them in a negative way, and but all these opinions aren't really necessary. I mean, if we choose to, sure, if you choose to have a lot of opinions and react, I mean, that's a choice. But when you're trying to be successful with contemplation, meditation, it's better, more beneficial to maybe be still sometimes and realize you don't have to choose. You don't have to choose a party, choose a stance, choose between is this person right or that person right, or react and respond to everything everyone says, or you realize you don't have to do that, because that's just the conditioning of the mind. What people don't understand is all those things cause a lot of conflict in the mind. You know, all those opinions, all those stances we take, all those things we choose, all those things, it creates a lot of inner conflict, because those things are dynamic, they're not static. So maybe at one point it looks this way and you respond or you choose, but then you see down the road, wait a minute, what I chose maybe isn't so right after all. Or so these, so you start and it starts to create this kind of conflict within because you have all these conflicting things and things that are always changing within the mind. 
So you have that basis of inner conflict, and people wonder why there's always this mental unrest or, or mental conflict, and that's why, because they're allowing the external world to keep their mind in a state, in a state of, of, of flux all the time, as far as going one way or the other way, or, or this what I thought was true here, all of a sudden now it's not true anymore. For the purposes of, of the spiritual path, um, sometimes it's better to not always feel like you have to get caught up in this in the swirling of the external world and just choose to be still. It doesn't mean you you don't understand what's going on. Sure, you can still be informed and understand what's going on in the world, but you don't necessarily have to. You can ask yourself, do I really need to have an opinion about this? Do I really need to choose in this situation? Can I just let things be as they are? Perhaps that's. Um in a way, calming down my my heightened sense of ego that, that it's so important for me to react and let other people know how I'm reacting. Well, yes, and that's the process of, the, of what you see on the spiritual path. In the worldly path, when, yes, we're, we're totally connected with the world and we engage full, full on 100%, then the ego starts to identify with those things. Well, I'm a mom, so because I'm a mom and this, or or I'm, I'm this religion, or you know, I'm this race, or this culture, or I have this social economic status, all the things we identify with, you know, or the job, I'm a doctor, you know, teacher, or whatever. All those things form a lot of external identifications, and that's in the, within the realm of the ego. The ego, it's the job of the ego to maintain those external identifications. And any time those external identifications are challenged, then we get disturbed. If someone puts down or, 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 or who we are, who we think we are, someone talks down to us, then we, we feel sad or defensive or angry about it. Uh, so we're always challenged. Those external identities are always challenged. But when you start to learn to identify with consciousness or that which, which is deep within you, those external things don't, need, don't really challenge that. Because you know who you are, you know who you are, you know that even though you operate in all these external functions, that's just a part of life, you have to, you're a parent or you're a student or whatever, yes, those are necessary, but you start to understand that's not who you really are, that you're something deeper within, you're something that's, you're pure consciousness, you're, you know, that you don't have those kind of limitations on the internal world, the external world is a lot of, a lot of uh, limitations. So the more you start to identify with that, then the ego becomes less of a challenge. The ego, obviously, we need the ego to function in the external world. There's nothing wrong with the ego as long as our, our identity is not so vested in the ego identifications, that your, your, your identification is based on who you discover that you are deep down inside, that peace, that love, those, those higher spiritual qualities. As long as you identify with those, then the external doesn't, doesn't affect you as much. Yes, and... When I'm sitting, contemplating, and practicing the art of meditation, I've noticed that I can get little glimpses of that, where I have experienced that I am that which is consciousness, and not just my physical body, not just my brain. And then... I kind of lose it, and I'm small again, so to speak. But then, if I just keep going, then I get another glimpse of it. And 
I guess that maybe is why they call it practice, because you're continually steering your consciousness or you're, you're steering your mind to experience that consciousness. That's how we learn everything we've learned in life, whether it be how to walk, Anything we've learned is, is through sustained practice. We've done, we did something long enough. We did enough reps till it became natural. So the spiritual path is the same thing. If you do it enough times, it becomes just natural. You don't have to think about it. It looks like running a marathon. Maybe that first mile was difficult, but when you start to be able to run 20 miles or so, then it becomes very natural. You can go out and you know, yes, I can go out and, and run 20 something miles. And even after you stop training for the marathon and not running that much, it still stays with you. That maybe you don't go out and run 20 miles, but you can easily go out and run five miles and pretty much sustain a certain amount of fitness. So it's the same thing spiritually. If you do enough times, it becomes natural. Right. And enjoyable. And enjoyable, exactly. It's not, it's not, you're not resisting it. You know, anytime you learn something new, there's a resistance there. But if you, when you can break through that resistance through repetition, then that resistance becomes enjoyable. So you have been so um, helpful to me when I have found, you know, difficulties in my meditation practice and handling my ego and wanting to react to, you know, any circumstances. I'm wondering how, or can you talk about the importance of having a personal guide, a personal teacher. You are a pundit in the Himalayan tradition. How I know personally how much that has helped me, but what could I tell a friend that might be considering having a relationship with a personal teacher? Well, that's a good question. And again, our tradition is very practical. So I would, just like I draw, drew upon the practical example of running a marathon, I also draw another practical experience for this question. So what have we learned in this life without a teacher? I mean, you know, we learned how to talk and walk. Our parents taught us those things. Then we went to school and we learned, you know, the arts and sciences and things like that. And then any kind of career path we went on. There was always was someone that had showed us the way first. So either, either passively, where we just simply watched someone do something and then we went and mimicked what we saw, or they were more active in teaching, where they they took us under their wing and they told us certain things and they helped help pointed out their mistakes. So it's just how we learn everything through some some form of teaching, whether it be direct or indirectly. So spirit for spirituality is the same thing. Just having someone to mentor you, to support you, to, to point you in a direction where you can get knowledge and information. Um, so it's just it's just very helpful. Can, could you could you do things on your own? Could you learn things in your life on your own? You know, maybe, but how much longer would it have taken you to learn things if you didn't have a teacher? So in the spiritual traditions, they say a teacher is a shortcut. I mean, yes, you can learn a lot of things trial and error and keep making mistakes over and over again until you finally figure it out. But a spiritual teacher is just a shortcut. There's, a, there's support. There's someone that has followed the path before you and can lead by example. They can inspire you. So those are the reasons why. It's not really that you need to depend upon a teacher to, 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 to tell you every little thing and sit back and wait for the teacher to tell you. But, you know, having a teacher just as a source, uh, a resource, is just it just makes things a lot 
a lot smoother. I can speak from my experience. You just mentioned your experience and our teachers related their experiences, having those, you know, people in worldly things to reference, you know, when they get up for awards or get accolades, they mention their mentors, their support system. So if you look at it that way, it's just a very natural, practical thing. And it, <laughs> you, you do everything with such a great sense of humor and keep the practicality of everything foremost, I think, which I really resonate with because I can Google things about meditation and I can read books and I can have a lot of intellectual knowledge about something, but it doesn't always translate into something that is personally helpful to me at any given moment. And I think that's been a big difference between having a direct relationship with someone like you who has learned directly from the wisdom of the Himalayan tradition. And it just, I think there's some power in the vibration in that personal relationship that is a direct teaching that it, I think you mentioned something about a shortcut earlier, and that's what it feels like. Like I could read 20 books and not get nearly as much help as if I talk to you about a certain struggle or, or um, topic for a short amount of time. Yes, that human connection. Yes, that human connection. I mean, we we do we need that. You know, from from very practical level to to more subtle spiritual levels. That human connection is 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 the real beauty of life. You know, just that connection, or not even human, just even with nature or or with animals. Just those connections are important. Yes, like you said, you can we can read books all we want to, but those connections are really what what, what makes life rich. And it makes the spiritual path rich when you you have that connection with someone who who is, who is a mutual respect, mutual love, mutual friendship, uh, and mutual experience, life experience. Someone who's gone through the same experiences that you have and has has been able to apply some of the spiritual teachings to help them. So yes, that's it's very important. And, and same thing, the energy, the energetic of, of that connection between humans is extremely powerful. Yes. And the, the Himalayan tradition emphasizes that a student doesn't get too dependent on his or her teacher, right? You're there to guide me, but I know you've reminded me and will probably have to remind me of us again that I am my own teacher eventually. And that's, that's what I'm working toward, that my own inner wisdom becomes more apparent to me and more recognizable, and I feel more confident with your help that I trust my own inner wisdom. Yes, that's true. And the, uh, you know, my teacher would always say, you know, the role of a guru is to help the student find the teacher or guru within, and, that, and that's it. And unless you find that within, you can only go so far. You can only go so far 
depending on someone externally telling you things. At some point, to get to the furthest, the furthest you can go to reach your highest potential, you have to at some point, you know, take that on yourself. It doesn't mean you you don't still have respect for the external source, but you know that that even if that external source is not there, that that you know you're connected. You have that inner connection with your higher self, and that and that's it. And when you have that, you have that strong sense of confidence and you know there's no doubt that you're going to reach your attain your goal if you deter if you're depending on someone from the outside you don't have that confidence that you can attain your goal because you're somewhere you're thinking what if that person leaves or what if that person doesn't tell me what to do anymore or what if i can't access the person they know what i do so you don't have that confidence that way that's really a gift and on that note Maybe we should end, but I really appreciate you. You've mentioned your appreciation for me, but it's a mutual thing. The relationship between a teacher, student, or a mentor and a mentee, it's a mutual thing because everyone benefits. I benefit from the interaction exchange just as much as you do. I get inspired. I learn things just like you do. So it's, it's a very mutual thing, and I'm very grateful. I've been working with you for all these years and, and consider you a friend and and a supporter. Well, thank you. Likewise. And really your, your sense of joy that you have from your own practice is so contagious. It's, that's been just so inspirational to me because I see through you that whatever is going on in the external world it doesn't take away that joy that you have. I didn't really even realize that that was possible, I don't think, before I started practicing yoga. Yes. So it's, it's been a wonderful thing. I teach you to always say that joy is our birthright. That's something that, that no one can take from us. That, that joy, that, that beauty, the, the love, all those things on the inside, they're our birthright. In the external world, yeah, we don't we don't need to let allow the external to take that away from us. You know, we can always hold on to that and, and experience that at all times. And yes, the external world can be challenges, and we have to go through those things. But you know, those things are ours. The joy and love and beauty. You know, no one can take those from us. And on that cool. note, uh, I'll, we'll, we can go ahead and sign off, and we'll have a, a part two. We can break down the mind even more. So maybe we we can follow this up with a with another talk. Yes. Thank you. I, I would like to um, continue and talk maybe more specifically about how meditation and contemplation can help guide my choice of action in specific situations and all the time. Okay, great. That's, that's a deal. We'll, we'll, we'll revisit this conversation. And again, thanks a lot for joining. Thank you, Jerome. Okay, bye. Bye.